Welcome to Unlocking Innovation, a podcast from EX3 Labs in 1871. We'll be talking to leaders in innovation about what keeps them ahead of the curve in today's atmosphere of rapid change and how they cultivate a culture of innovation within their organizations. I'm your host, Adam Wisniewski. Today's guest is Leslie Anderson. With over 25 years of experience in banking under her belt, Leslie is now the Senior Vice President U.S. Head of Banking, Treasury, and Payment Solutions at BMO Harris Bank. As an active member of the Chicago business community, she serves on the board of the Chicagoland Entrepreneurial Center and 1871. She also serves on the advisory board of both After School Matters and One Goal Chicago, organizations committed to youth education and college preparedness. Welcome, Leslie. Thank Thanks you. for joining us. Glad to be here. Absolutely. So a, a topic that comes up often. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, definitely interested in your, your background. For, for the listeners who aren't familiar with your background, can you give a little bit of information about your career journey and how you actually got from um, where you started to where you are today? Sure. Uh, my, my story is varied and probably not very common. So I, I went to Hampton University undergrad, which is an HBCU, and uh, majored in finance, although my intent was to be a lawyer uh, from when I can remember. But my mentor, who was my godfather, said, do not study pre-law, because if you don't go into law school, who knows what you'll be able to do. Um, that story or that byline is so not relevant these days as you think about what college really prepares you for. It really is just opening doors and not really um, unlocking true opportunities. But I, I graduated from Hampton. I had done a, an internship in accounting, hated accounting, um, but loved finance and met with a recruiter at MBD Bank, which is now Chase. And he said to me, if you don't know really what you want to do, go into banking because it touches every industry in the world and it touches every profession in the world. You can be everything from someone in marketing or HR to sales to accounting to finance and um, P&L work. And if you like a particular industry, you can go deep or actually leave the bank and go work in that industry. And from that conversation, I was like, yeah, that's it, because I'm not really sure. Um, and this just gives me the exposure that I need. Uh, I was one of one in my class in terms of being an African-American woman. Um, and there was a lot of chatter it was about, could I, you know, am I going to last? There's not a lot of people that look like me in leadership. Um, and so I took it as a personal challenge that, oh, yeah, I'm going to last. I'm going to be the best. And I worked really hard. Um, I ran hard. I, ran, I raised my hand for everything that they offered. I remember getting to work at like 7. So there was at, at my office in Park Ridge, there was one meter that was broken. And there were five analysts. And so we were killing each other to get to that one broken meter so we right. didn't have to pay. No one really took a lunch. So it was like either a Snickers or a Milky Way for lunch. Um, I leave after the last executive would leave. Uh, I go to the gym for a couple hours and then I do it all over again. So for the first three, four years out of college, you know, I had friends here, but I really did. It was heads down. I was trying to really make a name for myself. Um, I left MBD and came to BMO. And um, it really was based on um, me taking the initiative to reach out to folks. And I say if there's one thread that is woven through my success in this industry, it is um, my initiative and the resourcefulness that I leverage um, for opportunities to get deals done, 
Um, the one other thing I would say is that we moved around a lot. So my father's in education mm -hmm. and I probably didn't live in one place longer than three or four years. And I hated my parents for it. But what it did teach me was, because as a kid, kids are mean, um, I had to get to know kids really quickly. Right. <laughs> and I had to figure out like how I could fit in. And so my ability to connect with people very quickly and to learn what motivates them and to connect with really um, important parts of who they are has really helped to propel my career in sales. Nice. Yeah. And you mentioned, I'm interested in this because you said you didn't like accounting, but you liked banking and finance. Talk I to did. me a little bit about what drew you to it. So um, the way I saw it and even how I describe it to folks today, and there's no disrespect to accountants because they do great work and work that I don't want to do, but, but finance is almost the sexier creative side of accounting. It allows me to use my lens and um, some creative structuring to to one, understand what's going on with a company and then to begin to think about strategies for growth and supporting that growth for an individual company or individual by themselves. And so I, I like that creative edge to it. And it was, it felt less structured. So I'm not a structured person. Um, in accounting, it's structure. It's debits, it's credits. It's all of these rules that you have to follow. In finance, it's flexible. And I think that's what I was drawn to. Hmm. I like that definition. Anyway. I've <laughs> never heard it described that The sexier part of way. accounting. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So talk to me a little bit about, I guess, the role maybe mentors played in, in some of that. Obviously, you mentioned a couple of kind of pivotal people in your life that, that told you to stay away from this or mm -hmm. maybe go down that direction. Was, was there any influence, any other influence early on in your life that kind of helped guide your career path at all? Uh, in terms of, so I had a ton of mentors and some of them were um, not at all what you would expect. So my first in industry mentor um, was a guy by the name of Neil Prendergast and a white Irish from the south side of Chicago um, and really did uh, help me to understand, one, what it looked, what this industry looked and felt like. And he also was willing to invest in helping me um, use what was unique about me and my connections to be really outstanding and to stand out in front of my peers. Um, and he talked about, you know, go to like the South Side has some of the best businesses in Chicago, but there's a whole lot of bankers that won't go to the South Side. Go to the South Side, like build a brand in a community, your community that will continue to lift you up through this work. Um, and do the things that are unique to Leslie and you're not going to see them in anyone else. And so you've got to be comfortable with being the only one for a while, but trust me, it will pay off. So he was the, despite all of the, be your, your, your unique self, um, work that we're hearing today. He told me that 20 some years ago. Um, and it was someone that was very comfortable in his own skin, one, and wasn't didn't see me as a competitor. And I, and I don't know why that is. Like, it could be a whole host of things, and there could be some um, biases around why he didn't. But it didn't stop him from wanting to invest in me, and that was a, a critical, um, pivotal moment because it, it demystified what the white male executive uh, was being portrayed to me in banking. Um, and so I... I built a really strong relationship. I followed him, um, actually, when I, I went to, I left 
MBD and went to BMO. And then I left BMO and went to Fifth Third because of him um, and the influence that he's had on my career. Um, so that was my first mentor. Um, and I understood the importance of also having mentors that looked like me, that understood my experience. And so my first coach was an African-American man that came through banking and understood the environment that I was working in and was able to give me pointers um, and we're friends today. And his name's Guy Summers. But he really helped me to, to um, one, like the first message that he told me that stays with me and I share this with young people and it's very transparent and, and borderline embarrassing was I was in a team meeting and it was three teams talking to the senior manager and we were talking about making plan. And one of my peers said, well, if Leslie could get her team to work. And I was like, if your mama could work like that just came out of my mouth and I couldn't grab it back. <laughs> and it was, it, 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 it embodied you know, one, my protective nature of my team and my street fight mentality. Those are fighting words, those are right? Fighting exactly. Words. Um, and I, I knew then I needed a coach. And Guy, the first lesson he taught me was the difference between responding and reacting. Sure. And in reacting, they have the power. And is that really what you want? And in responding, you have the power. Right. And the power of silence in between. And so... Um, I have carried that lesson with me, and I tell younger people because I want them to understand that um, where I am today didn't come without big missteps. Right. Um, so you can recover from it, um, and you can learn from it. And being able to tell my story helps, hopefully, those to not make those same mistakes. Absolutely. Um, and, and then my my you know I've got mentors today. My CEO being one of them. I think part of that is because. Um, I was willing to reach out and build a relationship with him years ago, and we were laughing about that. And he said that I wasn't—I wasn't scared of him. Um, I, my father always said we put our pants on in the same way. They can't do anything to you that um, is legal that you can't come back from. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he has helped me think about my career in different ways, um, and has become more of a sponsor for me uh, as he's risen up in the organization. And I think the distinction between mentors who give you good advice and give you um, great guidance is very different from a sponsor that goes into the room and puts their their reputation on the line for you. And I think you need both. Absolutely. And, and some of our listeners might be wondering why, why is it important to kind of go back in history to talk about kind of where you came from? And I, I think it's extremely important because you have a role now that you play at BMO and, and BMO... Um, is thought of as an innovator in many ways. And I'm interested, especially on the leadership side, what your history has kind of brought to the table as it relates to how you think about banking differently. So can you talk a little bit about that, kind of how, how um, kind of your past has shaped kind of how, how your current role is structured and, and how you think about serving the needs of your clients? So um, banking has always been um, personal, and we talk about that all the time. Um, how I think about it differently. So I, I was at, um, we have these affinity groups, and one is um, African-American uh, professionals. And our CEO, Daryl White, made a comment that um, really does sum this up in terms of how we think about this, di- this work differently. And it's that our competitors, the competitive landscape for banks is now far and broad and deep and new. 
And I think the new piece uh, really is critical in terms of the new entrance into the marketplace. So no longer is it appropriate um, for us to, to look at our past performance and say we need to be faster. The answer is we need to be fast. We can't say we have to be easier than last year. We have to be easy. And I think that is how, um, as, as I think about how I came up through this, this industry, and we all, it's always a look back. How did we do last year and what could we do differently? Um, can we be better at what we did in these three areas? Uh, the new entrance into the marketplace make it nearly impossible for us to look at our trajectory through the lens of what we've done in the past. I love that. And it sounds like it's really about resetting the the standards mm-hmm. and kind of setting a new bar as it relates to either customer experiences or expectations on the on the services you all provide. Absolutely. So we, we know the world is moving at such a rapid pace now. Um, when is it really time for, for companies to think about how they service clients better. Talk to me about the cadence of that. Is it is it something because things are changing so fast? Is it enough to just to do it on a yearly basis, a quarterly basis? Like how often should corporations be thinking about this, and, and what's your approach to that? So the the time to think about innovation is yesterday, um, and so the dialogue we spend billions of dollars on technology. Um, on an annual basis, but the conversation around innovation is daily, um, and it's daily at a very granular level um, because we talk. Like I do a, I do a look forward and a look back and a look broad with my team on a monthly basis to say, what are you seeing? What are you hearing? More importantly, because our customers are really the bigger drivers of this work. Um, where. Fintechs in particular have um, found a space is that they are connecting with our customers. Um, They're meeting them where they want to be met, and they're serving them in a way that feels natural and intuitive. And we as a a mature industry let that happen. And so it's imperative for us to have a consistent dialogue with our customers about, you know, what are you looking for? What do you need? How do we serve you? What's different? I mean, we're moving from our legacy big branches to these mobile branches that are staffed with, um, you know, live dialogue computers and interactive um, portals so that folks can it's not a it's not a phone bank where you can say press three it's hi mr anderson what are you looking for today i see that you have x y and z like they want it they want you to be personal but not too personal personal where it's creepy right like there's this fine line between big brother and you know me enough to give me what i need right and we are constantly trying to figure out what that balance looks like and it sounds like I heard time spent with your team on a mm-hmm. monthly basis to try to figure out what the landscape looks like, whether it's technology or kind of the consumer landscape in terms of their needs. But then I also heard you say that you keep your ear open to customers' needs and Absolutely. that there's dialogue between the customers. Is there specific processes for how you get feedback or how you interact with the customers? Um, or is it just kind of done um, on an individual basis um, from the perspective of just getting feedback from banker to customer? So we do it in a 
number of ways. We have uh, surveys that we send out on an annual basis. We have surveys that we send out more regularly. And then our bankers are out on the street. Like I, They should be out 80% of the time asking and talking to our customers about their needs and what they're trying to accomplish and how do we fit and where are our gaps and what, you know, what are you looking for that you don't have. So our conversations with our customers have shifted from um, how are we doing to when you see yourself three to five years, what are the gaps that you see that you have? Where are we not filling them? So we're, we're not assuming. So it's, it used to be a good news story. Um, looks like we're doing well. Tell us how well we're doing. It's kind of like the when you go to get your car serviced, um, they actually fill out the survey and please select five <laughs> because that's, that's how we get rated. Right. I want to hear the ones and twos. Right. I have to hear the ones and twos in order for us to get better at this work. I want people, I tell uh, folks all the time, a, a Great. I'd rather be in a customer's face and them yelling at me than being in an eternal meeting talking about what we should be doing differently. Yeah. I get more information from that yell right. all day long, and I have an opportunity to turn it around. Right. It's like the couple that never had the argument. Absolutely. Talk about that. Right. <laughs> so, um, you mentioned the investment that that uh, BMO is making in technology mm-hmm. on an annual basis. Talk to me a little bit about the, the role that, that technology plays in the overall strategy and, and how it's impacting customers. So technology, and especially in the space that I'm in, in which is payments, um, it is rapidly changing. And our, um, our forward-looking process is dynamic. So those, you know, our priorities can shift. And we look at, at areas within um, our playbook where, hey, can we can we pull some dollars from here if we need to and and reinvest or deeply, more deeply invest in another area. So it is, technology plays a, a huge part. Um, where we have gotten stuck in the past and where we're trying to, to become more nimble is making sure that how we engage technology um, still checks the regulator boxes because we are a highly regulated industry and we operate globally and more specifically in Canada in the U.S. So we need to make sure that um, new technology doesn't expose our customers. We need to know that um, it still creates a level of transparency for regulators to make sure that um, we are doing the right things as a, a, a financial partner to this community. Um, it needs to be uh, not a me too. So that one of the things that we've challenged our technology team, and I, I still think we're still a little bit, a little bit dis- decentralized. So I, we're moving towards um, really looking at teams uh, and what we can do from a technology perspective more holistically, and then have an offshoot from that. Um, but it is. You know, I can't, we can't just be me too in the market. We've got to find a way to leapfrog our competition um, and still protect our customers um, and still do the things that regulators expect of us as a, as a responsible financial partner. And those are the, the so we've got a process that, that helps us to check the risk boxes. Um, and it can be arduous and it can be, yeah. um, it can take a long time. And so we actually have a team that's looking at that process saying, what can we pull out? What we can, what can we collapse and still do the things that um, allow us to maintain the trust of our customers? Right. And I, I love what you said because I obviously highly regulated industries 
they're often associated with a lack of innovation because mm-hmm. they have this this box that they have to stay within. So I love what you said about that constantly kind of evaluating that, especially as it relates to making sure the privacy is upheld with mm-hmm. your customers because I think that's so important. Um, talk to me a little bit about the partnering with startups because I know I can't turn my head here at 1871 without seeing BMO's um, involvement either in an <laughs> event or sponsoring or doing some great scenarios. Um, many people don't realize this, but um, – one of the main reasons why EX Relabs is even at 1871 is because of, uh, of BMO, uh, Harris Bank. So thank you for that. You. Um, we, uh, we, we certainly have benefited from um, your generosity and the, the, the bank's generosity. So, so you have done some tremendous work here. But 1871 um, has, has really seen a lot of um, BMO's leaders kind of step up and be involved um, Talk to me about the relationship with 1871 and why that's important. Okay. Um, so I I was part of the Chicago Land Entrepreneurial Center before 1871. So I, I sometimes affectionately call 1871 the CEC 2.0. <laughs> <laughs> um, and... and the CEC is a was a natural partner for it. They were actually part of the Chicago Land Chamber of Commerce, and BMO has had a history um, amongst our two hundred and two years of investing in the community in unique ways. We want to be part of um, that win story for. Um, key community groups in the communities we serve and the businesses that will eventually be, you know, major customers of the bank one day. Um, What I love about 1871 was before we were all things to all people and we helped some in really meaningful ways and other companies we didn't do so well. And when we moved to the model um, initially under Kevin Willer uh, to really focus on tech-enabled companies, it allowed us to to carve out what we do really well in laser focus resources around um, serving that part of the market, and then to create and then to to help to build up the community around us that are doing other parts that we don't do so well. So we become a much more robust community serving the broader needs of entrepreneurs, um, and that is absolutely aligned with BMO's strategy for growth. Um, and for partnering and for for being part of that overall win. Fantastic. And for the listeners that might not have caught it, I just want you to repeat how long BMO has been in business. 202 years. 202 <laughs> years. I think that's a record for uh, unlocking innovation interviewees. <laughs> Wow, that's a long time to be in business. It is, it is, and it doesn't come without struggle. So um, it it sometimes feels like we're moving a steamship when we try to get stuff done. Um, Innovation at its best in a company like ours that's been around for so long really um, roots its success in the individuals that are pushing. So when I talk about innovation to my team, um, it's how I judge myself. It's how I judge them. We come to work with that lens because I expect them, even if, you know, once they move on to bigger and bigger roles, that they're continuing to push that. Because without that individual um, and without that spirit of innovation, a 202-year-old organization doesn't move very fast. Right. Um, it takes every one of our 45,000 employees to really play um, their role in this work. So speaking of moving fast, let's talk a little bit about startups. 
Okay. So startups have, have played a, a, obviously a, a strong role in the Chicago community at mm-hmm. large. Um, you mentioned CEC 1871. I think they've done a really great job of connecting large corporations with startups. How does BMO view partnering with startups? And have there been any specific use cases or, or kind of examples you can point to of uh, that successful partnership? Um, yeah. So uh, when we started the partnership program, it really came out of um, Dave Casper, who's our U.S. CEO, saying, how do we take this relationship with 1871 to the next level? What do we, how do we monetize it, um, for lack of a better term? And so it was. It started off as um, a nice to do, uh, and I and I'm my hesitation is because it really wasn't. It, I I think that's too general of a of a term, but we didn't know what we didn't know. Sure. Um, and with the companies that have come through now two years of this work or two seasons of this work, um, it has really for and we. We handpick the leaders that are part of this because part of our intention is to expose them to this work. And we realize that um, you know companies like Genevity and Peanut Butter uh, have proven to us that it's not a nice to have. Like if we don't start finding ways to incorporate um, in some way, shape, or form, whether it is bringing them in house and allowing them to maintain their IP or partnering with them in a really meaningful way. Um, we're not going to survive. Like this, this, this economy, um, this world is moving at a pace that far outpaces what our normal um, pace would look like. And in order for us to keep up, we have to do these. So it's no longer a nice to have; it is a need to have, in order for us to remain competitive. And now it's incumbent upon us. So it's, we talked about this leapfrogging our our competition. Um, Chase and B of A and even Wells have have created partnership models, and we're using that as uh, okay. So why does that work? Why doesn't that not work? And then using it to create our own model, um, one that is. And I'm I'm staunchly um, defensive of making sure that entrepreneurs um, that the the partnership is as much a benefit to entrepreneurs as it is to the bank because if it's not mutual, it won't continue to grow. Right. So I, I want to make sure that if we bring them in house, yeah, they got to keep their IP. And one of our partners said, well, you know, we would actually keep that IP. And I said, so let me just tell you that won't work. Mm-hmm. No, like many entrepreneurs are doing this because of um, the bureaucracy that they want to get away from in large corporates. So they're not going to give that away. And they know how valuable it is today. Yeah, so absolutely. we've got to figure out a way to do both. And for the listeners that don't have as much context, um, BMO has set up some cohorts here yes. at 1871. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So we we under so it, it really is looking at the fintech world because that's the space where we play in. Um, but we we tend to to broaden off broaden off a little bit. Uh, peanut butter is a great example in terms of um, what partnerships are going to impact our ability to grow. And peanut butter works on the the people side of the business. Um, but we in, we pair them up with mentors and we expose them to the world of banking and finance and more importantly uh, help them to understand the regulatory environment that we have to work in and how they might need to shift their model 
to accommodate that. And many of these fintechs are not looking to replace banks, which I don't think will happen anytime soon. They are looking to partner. So the question is, what is what does a strong partnership look like? Um, we bring to a fintech an understanding of the regulatory environment and the privacy environment that is really critical. Um, customers don't talk about it a lot as they, they, you know, anyone will send money with Zelle. Uh, the assumption is is that these fintechs are are governed by the same body and they're not. So it is our responsibility to make sure that they understand what um, those requirements are. And we learn from the fintechs as well. How do we become more nimble? How do we meet customers where they are? How do we uh, continue to innovate our engagement with our customers? And that's what they bring to the table for us. Fantastic. And it sounds like it's a perfect synergy because it sounds like the cohort really is is around working with a startup that might not have an understanding of all the regulatory restrictions, and you pair them with a, a mentor that works at, at BMO mm-hmm. that understands those regulations and can help communicate that. Um, conversely, you have a scenario with the entrepreneur who's bringing some type of technology solution to the mm-hmm. table that's in the fintech space that can kind of help or at least align with something that's core to, to BMO's kind of strategic thinking around servicing clients. Absolutely. And for those of the listeners that aren't familiar with peanut butter, could you give a kind of a brief overview of what that is? So um, banking is about people. Um, We grow because of the strength of our um, talent internally to connect and create great customer experiences for our customers. Um, Turnover is an issue for our internal uh, population at at different levels um, throughout the organization. When we look at um, the new generation of bankers coming into this industry, the biggest challenge that we've found, or one of the biggest challenges, is the uh, student loan debt. And so we were looking to Peanut Butter because they brought a unique approach to this work, saying, as a part of your package for these individuals, you now can help them pay down the one thing that keeps them from you know, getting married and buying a house and becoming more settled and, and more importantly, staying with the organization so that you don't lose all of the investment you make in that person in the onset. Um, and it was, a, it was a, a different lens at keeping our engaging that community. Um, and we are continuing to look for ways in how we leverage that. Fantastic. So we, we talked a little bit about barriers to innovation, especially with large, large company. Um, some of the biggest barriers we know are around um, complacency. Uh, you mentioned that specifically in a, in a, a recent video that, uh, that I had a chance to see you in. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the role of combating some of these challenges, whether it's uh, on the startup side, on the profitability side, but more importantly on the corporate innovation side, which could be complacency in some scenarios? Um, so in my video, I talked about profitability being a big driver of complacency. Hey, we're doing fine. We don't need to change anything. Um, we use, we often use today the quote from Black Panther in that just because it works doesn't mean we can't improve upon it. Uh, but it really plays itself out every day in finance. Um, you know, debit cards or, or ATM cards worked 
you go in, you get your money, it's fine. Uh, what we didn't think about was all of the skimming machines that were coming on board. And so the fact that now you can use your BMO app to get cash out without ever using your debt, your ATM card is an example of just because it worked doesn't mean that it's going to work tomorrow, more importantly, right. and that someone's not going to come up with a, a shinier penny. Um, so it is... It's been kind of the mainstay of how we push. Now, our goals get bigger every year. So part of not being complacent is, okay, so we can't, you know, what got you here won't get you there kind of concept. Um, And we also, it's part of, so especially as Dave Casper and and Daryl White think about goals and objectives for for the very top of the house, um, they are very intentional about saying innovation has to be part of this work. We cannot rest on our laurels. 202 years um, didn't happen by chance, and the next 200 is going to be even harder. Um, How we win at this is by engaging the employee base to say, um, tell me, tell me why, or ask the question, why is, why are we doing this way? And no longer is acceptable that we've always done it that way. And Daryl used an example of, um, you know, we changed our email um, maintenance program, we had always just held everything and it created um, challenges around um, compliance that we didn't even realize. And so we were like, why don't we use the regulatory standard? Because that could save us millions of dollars. Like th- Those are the things that a new employee coming into this work questions legacy decisions that, you know, on the face seem really like, I, I don't have time to deal with email. But we do because that millions of do- those millions of dollars can be redeployed to help us advance, you know, our digital capabilities to connect with customers. So it is, there's when I say every one of our 45 employ- 45,000 employees, it's, it's part of what we ask them to do because nothing is really too small. The, the, we, we say that we are defining a great customer experience. That in of itself, that statement is dynamic. It is not... This is what it looks like. It's like, this is what it looks like today. And tomorrow at 8 is going to look a little different. And next week is going to look a little different. And we need everyone to help us meet that. So speaking of everyone, your team specifically, how do you ensure that they're on the same page when it comes to innovation? And how do you drive that innovation from more of a bottoms-up approach? I mean, it's easy for... The, the top tier folks to be able to say here what the here's what the mission is here's what we're going after for a specific quarter or year how do you ensure that everybody can be a core contributor to innovation so we we peel it back so people think about innovation as the bright and shiny technology that we're deploying and where that's a part of it it is not at all the essence of what innovative work really is about it's about you know continuing to look at how we, uh, everything from how we open the door to how we serve customers and how do we impact different bodies of people to do it better, more efficient, and in a way that creates great experiences, whether it's be for our employees or our customers. So, you know, I, every, I do one-on-ones with my team uh, once a month, but I'm probably talking about this often when I'm in the field um, if you're coming to work and something doesn't feel right or feels awkward or feels dated, bring it up. And we've got idea exchange. So there's some there's some digital 
uh, engagement tools that we use as an organization to say, how do we do something different or tell me about a problem and give me a, a solution that you think might work. So that's one way that we engage our population. But it really is um, asking people who are on the ground doing the work, how do we do this differently? Um, sometimes it means, you know, uh, uh, employing technology. We are now using bots more than we ever have before, um, not to replace people, but to replace tasks that um, are not um, thoughtful um, tasks that a person should. Like, I, I don't want someone to, to create a model I want someone to read the model and tell me what it means. So let me use a bot to do the creation of the work, and let me use my people to really get the highest and best use out of their thinking about this business. And so it, it's, a, it's a dialogue that I have, and it doesn't happen with every team. It's a dialogue that I have often part of because I'm in this space more often than not. Um, but it, it, it is becoming contagious. Um, it is top-down. There is an expectation from leadership that we are better at this work to, tomorrow and next year than we are today. Um, and Dara White and, and Dave Casper are putting um, metrics for their leadership to say, you know, what have you done? Like this is like, it, it also is legacy building. Uh, I remember Daryl Hackett and I was taking on a new role at the bank and I said, yeah, I can make plan easily. And he said, okay, so plan is table stakes. How are you going to leave this business differently? How are we going to be more effective, more efficient, more client-centric? Um, how are we going to attract better talent when you leave? What are the things that you're going to do to help us be better at this? And that's how I think about my job, and that's what I teach my leaders to think about their jobs. So the future, everybody needs to be thinking about the future now, right? Mm -hmm. Can you make a bold prediction about where you see the future of banking kind of heading in the next two to three years? So the, the future of banking is going to become increasingly more client-centric. And it is going to become increasingly more digitized while also creating more jobs for people. I think people think about digitization as the elimination of jobs. And it's not as the elimination of tasks. And I think that um, if we do this work right, you are going to have a more engaged and informed workforce with more jobs to offer, um, serving the customer in light speed and in ways that feel very familiar um, and very engaging. And we're going to come out with outcomes for our customers. Like I, I fully expect that banks will partner with fintechs and other companies to help the broader population live their best life. And I think that's what we're all striving for. And I see that in the future. And then the question is, what does that best life look like at 2.0? Perfect. So we're going to do, we're going to transition a little bit to rapid fire questions. Okay. So I'm just going to ask you if you prefer something, I'll give you a couple options. Okay. Without much thought, just uh, respond to the best of your ability with uh, your selection. So do you prefer to work in large teams or small teams? I prefer to small teams within large organizations. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. What's the ideal size of a team? Uh, five to seven uh, diverse people. I, I do like conflict. Um, I don't like people that think like me because we never get anywhere. Fantastic. So do you prefer to work with teams of, of generalists or specialists? Both. Um, I need specialists 
to, to actually execute on some parts of the strategy. I need generalists to really think broadly. Do you prefer to work in person or remotely? I love to work in person. However, my move to Flossmore <laughs> has created a new um, appreciation for remote working at times. <laughs> as long as there's no heavy commute involved. That's right. That's right. All right. Do you prefer to use blue sky thinking or focus on a specific problem? I like blue sky. And if you do it right, you are focusing on problems too. Fantastic. So last question, most important question of the day. Uh, what's the one app on your phone that you can't live without? Do not judge me, but it's Candy Crush. <laughs> it is okay. how I disengage. Yeah. I'm competitive. Yeah. Um, and so I get my competitive kind of edge from it. Uh, it has nothing to do with finance. Although I will say we just went to a conference and um, we did Currency Crush, <laughs> which I loved, uh, which was a spin on Candy Crush. But nice. it, it is the one thing that helps me to, um, when I leave work and I want to transition, it helps me to do that. Love it. And then I, no judgment on this end, too, because <laughs> I love games, too. So. <laughs> well, thank you for talking with us today. It's thank absolutely you. a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to see you. And thank absolutely. you for taking time out of your schedule. Um, if the listeners want to follow you or keep track of uh, what you're up to on, on social media or the like, is there a specific Twitter handle or LinkedIn? Or uh, I am on LinkedIn. I am on Twitter. My Twitter is uh, Chicago LJA. And um, I am the only Leslie Anderson at BMO for LinkedIn. Um, and um, I, when people reach out to me, I definitely uh, look forward to that. People also get a hold of me through BMO. So on our website, there are Ask the Experts, and I'm one of them as well. So Don't doubt it. <laughs> you can find me in a whole host of different places. Fantastic. Well, thank you again. Thank you. Remember to subscribe to Unlocking Innovation wherever you listen to podcasts and be sure to rate and review. To stay up to date with EX3 Labs news and events, follow us on social media. We're at EX3 Labs. See you next time.